Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of Genesis. We're back in the book of Genesis. We've been journeying together uh, over the last uh, year or last several years in different pieces through this and find Genesis chapter 37. I mean, let me tell you, as I was preparing and praying about how we started this new year, I actually had a completely different sermon picked out to start the year, but I, I kind of start thinking ahead and looking ahead and kind of looking at Genesis, and I was like, no, th- this <laughs> is where uh, we need to start the new year together. So Genesis chapter 37, and we'll read uh, the whole chapter together. The Word of God says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's, his father's sojournings, In the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock of his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So they saw him from afar, and behold, he came near to them. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. 
And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons And all his daughters arose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of God. Let me start by taking a poll Who thinks their family is dysfunctional? Put up a hand. This is not the time to look around, right? Some of y'all are going to put both hands up, right? Let Let me let you in on a little secret. Every family is dysfunctional one way or another. In fact, here's the point we need to see. Dysfunctional families have always existed. Some have more unique levels of dysfunction than others. But let me tell you, From experience and from God's word, dysfunctional families have always existed. And friends, this is seen, yes, in our own personal experience, but also we see that family dysfunction is central to the storyline of the book of Genesis. Friends, family dysfunction has been at the core of this book as we have worked through it together Over the last period of time, Moses, the author of Genesis, is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's writing to the nation of Israel as they're in wilderness, and he writes a book to them all about family. In fact, the whole book of Genesis is organized around the word generations that you'll see over and over and over again. And look back, if you want, in this book. You can look back at how it opened in chapter 1 and 2. And we see that before God would ever build a nation, God would create the family. That before God would create all kinds of human relationships, before he created government, before he created friendship, before he created work, 
God created family, and there in the garden, he blessed marriage. And friends, this should really reorient our uh, perspectives and priorities in our life. Recall that after God created the world, he created mankind and he put them in family. Adam and Eve were married by God in the garden. And then they were given the mandate to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And yet it doesn't take long for everything to go wrong, right? The Satan, the serpent enters the picture and he comes right at the family structure. And he deceived the first family and they fell into sin. And as they were cursed, so all creation is plunged into the curse. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that because of sin, the works of our hands will be difficult. And because of that first sin, our relationships will be divided. Here's what this means for you. Because of what happened in the garden, there is dysfunction at your dinner table and at your Christmas get-together. You know why there was some awkwardness maybe? If, maybe at your dinner table or in your life or some dysfunction in your family. Ultimately, it is rooted back in what occurred in the garden with the first family with their sin. But the good news is that God has not left us without hope. You can find this in Genesis 3.15, the most important verse in the whole book of Genesis. God speaks to that serpent, and here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It says there the serpent is going to be at enmity, at war with the woman, and that there's going to be offspring that will be at ongoing conflict. Notice it says the hope is that the woman would have a child that the hope of the world was going to come through family and that there's going to be two families ultimately in the world. The family of the serpent of Satan that follow his desires and the offspring of promise. And ultimately through that, God would bring forth an offspring who would bruise and crush the head of the serpent. You know, if you work in the garden, the best way to kill a snake is to crush the head. And that this offspring would come who would kill the snake, reverse the curse, even as the snake would bruise or do harm to him. But it would not be a fatal wound. And the promise of Genesis 3.15 is really what the whole book of Genesis has been about. It opens it up, and as it opens it up, family dysfunction continues. Think back to Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills his brother Abel. Think back to Genesis 6 to 10. You've got the family of Noah saved through the flood, only to come out the boat on the other side and get drunk in their own vineyard. And lots of other things happen there that are, uh, are PG-13 and rated R that occur after that. And then we see in Genesis chapter 12 that there is one man... Abraham, and that God calls him out of the midst of nowhere and gives him a promise that through him and through his family, the serpent would be destroyed and the curse would be reversed. And yet, as we wandered through the life of Abraham last year, you can remember he had a ton of dysfunction, didn't he? He had this whole messy situation where he lied to Pharaoh and claimed his wife was his sister. P.S. Don't, don't do that, guys. It's not, not going to end well for you. 
He had a, a really awkward situation where he, he was with both Hagar and Sarah at the same time. And Abraham even had a son, Isaac, who had all sorts of dysfunction with his brothers. There were multiple wives. There were two sons at war. And one of these sons was named Jacob. And he has 12 children through four different women. So here's the point of telling you all this. The dysfunction now continues into the fourth generation in the book of Genesis. We've seen Abraham. We've seen Isaac. We've seen Jacob, and now we're to Jacob's kids, and we see that dysfunction just seems to follow this family everywhere they go. Look at chapter 37, verse 1 and 2. Look at this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So the focus of the next 13 chapters is going to be on the generations or the family of Jacob, who's also called Israel, and his 12 sons. And particularly, the focus is going to be on one of the sons named Joseph, who in just one chapter, in just these 36 verses, goes from a favorite son to a foreign servant. He goes from a place of prominence to the pit of pain. He goes from the number one to the forgotten son. And the chapter shows us this decline in three parts. First, we see that Joseph was the beloved son. Joseph was the beloved son. Look at verse 2. Look what happens here. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So We're only a few verses into hearing about Joseph's life here, and we've already got conflict. Joseph brings a bad report about his brothers. The word here is actually used in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 10.18, which says this, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever slanders or brings a bad report, same word used there, is a fool. So you've got Joseph He's a young 17-year-old kid, one of the youngest of the family, and he is slandering or saying these sort of false things about his 11 brothers to their father. And we see the dysfunction even comes from their father as he's showing favoritism to Joseph over the other sons. And if you remember much of the story of Jacob, you know that he should know better than this. Israel was was following right in the sins of his fathers and even the grandfather. This this family's always had a problem with picking a favorite. And so sin, we know, can corrupt generation after generation if we let it. And that the sin of favoritism ruined relationships in this family. And it's a warning to us that favoritism will ultimately ruin our family as well. But there wasn't just dysfunction with the father. We see dysfunction among the brothers. They saw the favoritism and hated Joseph and just couldn't speak peacefully to him. And despite their father's sins, we see that they were ultimately responsible for their own hatred. They harbored this hatred in their heart 
And regardless of the sins their father did, they were responsible for what they did with their own hatred. Here's a tough pill to swallow that I know people in my generation and younger need to hear. Your family may have wronged you, but that doesn't give you an excuse for hatred. We need to hear this. Just because someone hurts you doesn't justify you hurting them. Our culture tells us all the time that, well, we need to do back to others as they have done to us. And sadly, this is what sin tells us, to return evil for evil, sin for sin, eye for eye. But friends, if we go an eye for an eye, we make the whole world blind. (laughs) And it doesn't even ultimately make you feel better. These brothers were responsible for how they reacted regardless of what happened to them. And that is true for you, too. Friends, there's many of us that are holding on to something that's happened to us. And the invitation from the life of Joseph is to see see where it led his brothers to, harboring things that have happened to you. Let it go or look where it ends up. But beyond Jacob's sinful favoritism, he, he did notice something and he wasn't totally wrong about it. He wasn't completely crazy He noticed that God had chosen to do something unique through Joseph. And so he gives him this this robe of many colors, which was sort of a a royal robe. He he looks like royalty. And we see that regardless of the father's father's favoritism, Joseph had been chosen by God to receive these prophetic dreams. Look at verse 5. Look what happens here. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I dream. Behold, you were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Look at this. Joseph had this unique gift. God had been giving him these prophetic dreams, these words from God and these pictures. And so Joseph hears this and shares this gift with his family. And you can read tons of commentaries with all kinds of opinions on what Joseph was doing here. Was was Joseph coming to brag? Maybe. He was a 17-year-old kid, right? Was this a sign of immaturity? Possibly. But Let's also consider that Joseph had a real zeal about what he knew God had given to him. He had a real zeal about these dreams he knew were from God. And he just got so excited. And in his excitement, he forgot to read the room. <laughs> he forgot to see that maybe, maybe this isn't the time for me to share this dream with other people. He could have been prideful. He could have had youthful zeal. And friends, you'll learn this. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between arrogance and immaturity. Sometimes it's very hard to tell the difference between those things. And so the brothers hear this, and they just hate him all the more. And they hated what God had chosen to do through their brother. And Joseph, who again is obviously oblivious, continues talking. Look at verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. 
but his father kept the saying in mind. Notice, the tension begins, continues to rise here, and maybe you all have had this family member who they've said something awkward at dinner, and then they just keep on going. This is not the time to look around in any family you might have here, right? But we all know when that's happened, right? And so Joseph buckles down, and he keeps talking about these dreams, And both dreams were prophecies saying, hey, the whole family is going to bow down to Joseph. That this young kid was going to be a king. Who's going to believe that? And we see that the brothers' jealousy and hatred grew while Jacob pondered and considered. There's really a lesson here for us. It's, It's a lesson to consider that the brothers were quick to reject something they didn't like. And friends, we're often that way, aren't we? We hear it and we're just ready to knock it off. Friends, we're quick to reject God's truth because we don't like it or because we don't like who it might come through. We'd rather have it our own way and make our own self king, and yet God had other plans. And consider how Jacob had the faith to at least ponder and consider these things. To trust and to wait. See, sometimes faith isn't really running to defend the word someone receives. Sometimes faith is just trusting and waiting and seeing what God's going to do. Friends, notice, Jacob doesn't just jump on and go, well, I know, my, I know my son. He's ready to fight the other one. He doesn't go and go, I'm, I know my son, and I know that what he heard was from God. He's like, we'll see. And friends, that's faith, to wait And to see what God is going to do. Joseph was the beloved son. He was blessed with these dreams. And he had all sorts of conflict in his family life. Notice the next scene. That second, we see that Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. And so Joseph is sent to his brothers in the field. And notice a couple things. Notice Joseph isn't in the field with the other brothers. That should already tell you something about the family dynamic. Joseph doesn't have to go do the chores like the other brothers do. And he heads there, and he comes to find that his brothers aren't even where they're supposed to be. Kids, right? Never. <laughs> they're left unsupervised. They end up somewhere else. And look what happens in verse 18. The brothers see Joseph from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what, be, what will become of his dreams. So they begin to conspire together, and the two of the brothers speak up. You see Reuben, who's the oldest, and Judah, who's the second oldest, speak up. And here's what Reuben says, verse 21. When Reuben heard it, he, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So Reuben wants to spare his life. But notice he does it for purely selfish reasons. Reuben wants to look like the hero by rescuing Joseph and restoring him to his father. 
If you remember, you can read about this later if you want, but Reuben had blown it in a huge way back in Genesis 35, and he's probably thinking, if I can rescue the younger brother, man, I'm going to be back on top. He's going to have a picture of me on the fridge. Instead of that Joseph kid, Reuben wants to, wants to spare his life, but rather suggests, let's just throw him in a hole, right? So then Judah offers a suggestion, verse 25. And they sat down to eat, and then looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let us let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So notice, even Judah's in it for himself. He wants, he's not necessarily earn, worried about earning his father's approval. He wants to line his pocketbook. So he sells Joseph for the price of a slave to these people, these Ishmaelites, which are actually distant cousins. They're in the Abraham family tree, right? And so the 11 brothers, they sell him and then they come together and they cover their tracks. Verse 29, look what happens. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus the, his father wept for him. See this, Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave, and he becomes the first Israelite to be sold into Egypt. And notice how the brothers together are very much like Cain hating their brother. They acted like their father, Joseph, who was known to scheme and deceive. And notice that Joseph was silent before his persecutors, like a lamb led before the slaughter. We don't hear from him at all. And in this encounter, we do see a few things. First, we are warned about the power of peer pressure. See this, they, all they started with was just venting their frustrations and ended up in a plethora of sins, and it drug all the brothers into it. As Joseph is thrown into the pit of death, his brothers descend into a pit of deeper and deeper sin. Friends, hear this. Be careful who you walk with. Be careful who influences you. And be aware that friends you have are either going to drag you into the pit or pull you out of it. Genesis 37 is a warning to be careful who you're around. Be careful of the peer pressure around you. Second, see that even God's people can do terrible things. 
Friends, the 11 brothers are at all sorts of places in their walk with God. But these were the people of God, the sons of Israel, the children of promise. And yet we see them doing wicked things like the nations around them. Let me, let me prepare you for something. Let me prepare you for something. God's people, even God's people in this church, will probably sin against you at some point. And this isn't just about this church. This is any place you go. Now, people here are probably not going to sell you to Egyptians like these brothers did, but they will hurt you somehow. You will be betrayed and hurt by people around you. And this isn't to excuse anything, but it is to prepare you. Because people will often come to churches and they're surprised that there are sinners there. Just let, me, let, me, let it be known, there are only sinners here. No other options. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it is within the power of each one of us to hurt other people. Friends, if you only want a community without sinners, you'll never find a community at all. And so, friends, we see that Joseph's physical family was dysfunctional, but friends, families of faith are dysfunctional too. And that means when we join with a family of faith, we have to come in, on the front, come in the front door knowing that we're going to need humility and faith and grace to preserve in forgiveness and love toward one another. Joseph's actually going to model that for us later in the story to come. But friends, God's people will hurt you. At some point, it's going to happen. I'm preparing you for when you call me later and are surprised that you got sinned against my fellow sinners. Well, there's a third lesson here that really is the overarching point of the, the whole Joseph narrative, and it is that God's people must prepare to suffer. Friends, Joseph was a beloved son, and yet he was still betrayed and still suffered. Friends, Joseph didn't necessarily deserve what he received, and it came from his own family Believer, you must be prepared to suffer because suffering is inevitable in this life. Joseph is a lesson for us. God can love you immensely and still allow you to be wounded deeply. God can love you immensely and still allow you to be wounded deeply. And you may be in the pit of suffering, wondering why God and where God is. And Genesis 37 serves as a reminder to show you that this is only chapter 1 of Joseph's life. This isn't the end of the story, and neither is your current moment the end of the story. And the reason I know is because you're here. And this brings us to our final point. Joseph was a beloved son. He was betrayed by his brothers. And we see finally that Joseph suffered for a purpose. Joseph suffered for a purpose. Friends, all of us need to know this because all of us are either going into a season of suffering, in a season of suffering, or going out of a season of suffering. That, friends, we need to understand that suffering in your life is for a purpose. And the story of Joseph isn't done. You've got 35 verses of downhill descent, but there's a moment of hope. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. See this. The favorite son is humbled and becomes a foreign slave. He's in a land he doesn't know with people he doesn't know. 
And now he ends up serving in the palace of Pharaoh. And what was meant as a put-down is going to become a setup. You may know the story of Joseph and, where's this, and where this is going, or maybe you don't, but you can get the sense that the story is just beginning. Joseph may think his life is over, but friends, he's getting set up for something incredible that's going to come to him. And the whole thesis of this story is actually at the end. In Genesis 50, verse 20, from the mouth of Joseph himself, he gives us the point of his own life, and it is this. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See it, Joseph himself could look back at the end of his life, at the end of the story, and go, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But there's many of you that aren't there yet. Hear me, you're not at the chapter 50 the story looking back, but you're in the chapter 37 having to have faith looking forward. And friends, that's why in the gap, you must walk by faith. You have to trust what you cannot trace. You must have faith in the face of the impossible and the uncertain. And friends, that gap can be huge. It can be long. And in the gap, Joseph had to believe that the dreams that God brought to him were true. That Joseph was in the pit, but God said that one day he'd be on a throne. It might seem like the brothers were ruling over him, but God said that Joseph was going to rule over them. It seems as if he was good at dead, but the good news is that his God and our God is an expert at making dead things alive. And so the good news is that Joseph didn't experience this in a vacuum. Certainly, Joseph had heard growing up the stories of God's work and Abraham and Isaac and his father Jacob, the way God worked through the darkness and impossibility of their life to bring life from the dead. And friends, and in your suffering, you're not in a vacuum either. You can look back on Joseph and you can look back on a true and better Joseph. Because here's the point. Joseph is meant to point us to Jesus. Joseph points us to Jesus. You'll see this quote in your notes. There is a greater beloved son who was betrayed by his brothers to accomplish the purposes of God. And friends, if you ever need confidence that God can take the evil done to you in your life and turn it for good, yes, look at the story of Joseph. But friends, look to Jesus. He could take the darkness of a cross and bring it to shine forth light of everlasting life from the empty tomb. Friends, hear this. God may never answer the why question in your life, but he has given you a cross. Friends, he may not. It's unlikely that God's going to give you a dream tonight making your whole life just make sense. It's unlikely he's going to do that, but he has left you an empty tomb. And the cross and the empty tomb are clear evidences that darkness does not win and that God is ruling and reigning over everything. What others intended for evil, God intends for good. And Genesis 50, 20 is, is a, in the life of Joseph are a picture of ultimately what God is doing in your life. 
And in your story, in your dysfunctional family, God can bring good out of evil. God can bring sense out of the senseless. And friends, the gospel is good news for those who are suffering. And it is good news for those who feel the dysfunction and the curse of this world. Because Jesus is the amen. God's promise to sinners that the curse is going to be reversed. The the serpent's going to have his head crushed. And that he is going to bring good in the end. Even out of the most immense and intense evil. That out of darkness, light will win. But friends, maybe in the, in the meantime, what we need is the faith of Joseph, who like generations before him had to look into the darkness of uncertainty and walk forward trusting that God would lead him. Trusting that God's word was true. Imagine Abraham, his, I guess, great grand, his great, great grandfather, when God says, leave your house and go. And he goes, where God? And God goes, I'll tell you when we get there. And Abraham takes the step into the dark and goes where God calls him to go. Think of that that pattern followed in Isaac and in Jacob's life. And now in Joseph, look, he's being sent into Egypt. But God was in Egypt with them. And God was going to do something incredible through him in Egypt. He trusted that God's word is true and that he who began a good work in him was going to bring it forward to completion. That God is all about the turnaround and the comeback and resurrection from the dead because that's what God does. And so friends, today what, you need, what, what we need to be reminded of is to ask God to give us faith to help our unbelief, and to ask for mercy and grace in our time of need because he is able to give us that for the journey ahead. The favorite son descended to become a foreign servant. But the good news is that the pit wasn't going to get the final words. And friends, there's people here today in a pit. There's people here today that don't have any idea what is ahead of them. They need faith. They may have even needed all sorts of faith and help even to get here this morning. But the good news is that the story of Joseph shows us that God's all about taking your darkness and bringing light out of it. That God used the most horrific event in the cross of Jesus to resurrect people who trust in him by faith from the dead and to give everlasting life and forgiveness of sins. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray here in just a bit, but I want you today, maybe you're in the pit. And today there's people around you who would love to pray for you. Maybe you know somebody who's right around you, who you know is just struggling with something. And believe me, I know there's people around here with all kinds of things they're, they're working through. In this next time of prayer and into our time of response, I want, you to, I want you to gather around those people as you feel comfortable to pray together, to encourage one another, and to look together at the promise of Genesis 50-20 that what men and others intend for evil, God intends for good. Let's pray together. Feel free as you need, if you need to come forward to the altar, if you need to gather with other people, if there are other people around you who can pray over you. But today, let's, let's take time as we prepare to respond to God's word 
to seek him together and to pray. Lord, we know that you're the one who takes darkness and brings it forward to light. We don't have all the answers, but we know the one who does. And we know the one who has given us confidence and assurance in this time that he is with us, that he has not abandoned us, and that he is working all things together for his glory and our good. Lord, we pray for Joseph's faith. He doesn't speak a lot while he's in his suffering. And that tells us of what trust and faith looks like. When you cannot trace his hand, you trust. We trust your heart, God, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you love us enough even to allow us to be wounded deeply in order to get us where you would have us to be to serve the purposes that you have for our life. We're thankful that you know better than we do that your ways are so far above our ways and often beyond finding out. And so, Lord, we ask that as we respond in worship, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed by your goodness, by your kindness, by your otherness. And, Lord, we're, we're thankful that you're the God who's in control of all things, even the evil that comes. Lord, you intend it for good. And we trust you in this time, and we respond now in worship. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.
through sending an Israelite into Egypt for him to end up rescuing his brothers and decades later for a nation to be led then back out of that Egypt. We do serve a God who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or imagine. Now I want to close this service just a little bit differently. I I know many of you know we've had uh, some loss in our church family over uh, this last week. And so I just want to pray for uh, Kevin and Kendra and uh, their loss in this time. And we'll close by praying together. Feel free to reach out your hand or just pray or whatever you feel uh, comfortable doing and uh, send your love and affection to them. There's a, mail, there's a meal train set up. If you want to contribute to that, I can send you the link or it's on our Facebook group. You can uh, go there and do that. But let's pray together for this family. Uh, yeah, let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful that you love us. And Lord, even in the midst of deep grief, we trust you. And we know that because of the gospel, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And so, Lord, we ask right now for the Terrell family and for others that are suffering here today, that you would supernaturally comfort them with the peace that surpasses all understanding found in your word by your spirit. And may your people extend love and care to them. And may those who are hurting here know your love and your care for them. And Lord, we ask and we pray all these things to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.